Well, God bless each and every one of you this morning. I am not Caleb. <laughs> Amen. Um, my name is Abel Rivera. For those that don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here at the Grove. Um, excuse me for a second. I just want to make sure that I don't preach for two hours. Uh, uh, let's see. And here we go. All right. So, yeah, I'm one of the pastors here at the Grove, and uh, I got the privilege to uh, preach this morning, uh, continuing, to, uh, continuing with uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses uh, 6 through 10. And I would like to do a little recap. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks since uh, it feels that way, uh, that we haven't been going through the book of Timothy um, as we're continuing through this year. And I would just want to do a little recap before we actually dive into the text this morning. So we know that the book of Timothy is a letter um, by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, uh, as he considered his true son in the faith. Um, Paul entrusts Timothy with uh, leading the church in Ephesus. He strongly reminds him of his objectives, uh, which is to extinguish the false and teachings, uh, the false teachings by those who teach the law, promoting controversies instead of faith. Uh, he also instructs Timothy uh, throughout uh, with practical advice on how to lead the congregation. As we see chapter 1, uh, Paul reminds Timothy that the law is good if it's only used lawfully. He then reminds of uh, the grace of God using himself as an example. Um, he, is, he says that he is the worst of sinners and will show mercy so Christ's unlimited grace will be displayed in his life. Paul ends this chapter encouraging Timothy uh, to fight the good fight and keep his conscience clear. Uh, chapter 2, First um, Timothy, talks, uh, Paul talks uh, and reminds us that we are to pray for those in authority so that we can leave, live peacefully and quiet lives. We learn an important truth that God desires everyone to save and uh, to be saved, I'm sorry, and to come to the knowledge of knowing him. Paul finishes uh, this particular chapter with the specific instructions to the women of this church and to learn about faith. Uh, Timothy chapter 3, we see that uh, he, Paul gives us a list of the characteristics that both the overseers and deacons in the church must have. Uh, they are to manage their household well in order to likewise manage the house of God's will. Paul gives this instruction so they will know how to conduct themselves in God's household. And then we come to chapter 4 in Timothy. And right in the beginning, Paul starts with warning to observe the times, mentioning that some will abandon the faith and follow things taught by demons such as forbidding marriage and certain foods. However, Paul reminds us that everything is created by God and should be received with thanksgiving. And we come now to, it brings us to chapter uh, 4, verse 6 through 10. And as we dive in, on these next few verses, uh, we will be looking at three points. And my hope this morning is that we come out of here encouraged and empowered by God's word. So the three points for this morning will be the goal, the training, and the reason. The goal, the training, and the reason. So here we are in the gold on verse, uh, uh, verse 6 in chapter 4. It says, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, nourished by the words of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. And there's three things that we're going to look in this particular verse. And the first thing we're going to look is where Paul says, if you point these things out. Here Paul focused more on Timothy's pastoral approach to what? To the heretics, 
to the people that were teaching against God's word, against sound doctrine. And these heretics claimed to know God. That was, that was the biggest issue. They claimed that they knew God. And the, the scripture talks about these particular heretics, and, and it says that they're pretty much detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good works because they deny him by their works. They denied God by the works that they were doing, by what they were teaching. They were not teaching sound doctrine. And Paul pretty much is, for, uh, is telling Timothy to focus on these things, on these teachings that are taking away the people from the truth. So therefore, church leaders' primary strategy to combating false teaching is to keep sound doctrine in the eyes and ears of his congregation. You change that message, and the basis of faith shifts from Christ to something else. Our eternal destiny depends upon hearing, and what it says in Ephesians chapter 113, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Furthermore, sound doctrine is important because the gospel is a sacred truth or a sacred trust. And we dare not to tamper with God's communication to the world. See, our duty as followers of Christ is to deliver the message and not change the message. Now, Paul continues to say that if, uh, if you do these things and if you point this out to the brothers and sisters... You are a good servant of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. And what is a servant? And I have to look this up. And it's a translation from the Greek word daulos or dolos, which means more literally a slave or bond servant. And I had to pause there because in today's um, um, world, in our present age, when we hear the word slave, we, we actually think of somebody that uh, is, is oppressed, somebody that is being forced to do something out of their will. But when Paul wrote this in the definition that the Greek gave it, a slave or a bond slave is someone who sets aside all rights of his own to serve others. Totally different from what you hear today. Someone who sets aside all rights of his own to serve another. See, Paul, and we see the life of Paul, Paul sets aside all his rights for the gospel. He was teaching and reminding Timothy, and also he teaches us, that if we put aside all of our rights to serve others, we will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. So what is the goal? The goal then is wanting to be recognized as a good servant of Christ. And the question that I have to ask is, what identifies a good servant of Christ? And I came up, I came up with a couple of things that can identify if we are a good servant of Christ. A servant of Christ knows who is the King of Kings, who is our Lord and Savior, who is Jesus Christ in their lives. A servant of Christ knows that the one who came and while we were dead in our trespasses, he gave us life. A servant of Christ knows the one that pulled us out of the darkness of sin and brought us into the light of righteousness. A servant of Christ knows the one who gave his life and rose on the third day, defeated death so we can have eternal life with him. A servant of Christ knows the one we are waiting for to come again as he promised so we can be with him forever. A servant of Christ 
is one who, is, who has voluntary set aside his or her personal right in order to love, serve, and obey the will of God in Christ Jesus. A servant of Christ dies daily to sin and fleshly desires, allowing Christ's life to flow through them. Galatians 2.20 says it this way, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself to me. So what is a good servant? It's one who is knowledgeable and experienced in the truth of the Christian faith. And I'll repeat that one more time. A good servant is one who is acknowledgeable and experienced in the truths of the Christian faith. So in order to be a good servant in order for a good servant to know the truth, teach the truth, defend the truth, they have to have experience with the truth. This means that a good servant has knowledge of the scriptures and an understanding of how scripture is meant to be lived out. Knowledge of the scripture and understanding how scripture needs to be lived out. And it doesn't just stop there by knowledge and by understanding. It's that they are actually living it out. They are living this out. Because they are trying to honor God through their lives. No matter what the circumstances may be. See, when you talk to a Christian, you're... you're a true Christian would say, you know what, I got problems, I got issues, I got troubles. There's a lot of things in my life that is wrong, and I wish it can be fixed, and I wish it can be perfect. But when you dig deeper into their faith, their faith is in Christ. Not on what they're going to see, what they're going to feel of the goodness that may come in this life. Because they know that this is just a temporal thing. And they try to honor God through the way they live, regardless of the circumstances that they're going through. See, a good servant are godly people. And godly people are God-fearing people. They hear God's call to renounce ungodliness and to live a godly life. A life that doesn't look like the rest of the world. They will speak, they will live, they will think differently from the world. Titus 2, chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 says it this way. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us. You see how it says that? Instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly, worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present world or the present age. See, this wasn't just for the Christians back then. I love how scripture describes something that is still for today's world, for our lives. So this was true 2,000 years ago and is still true today. We are to live a life that reflects Christ in us. Jerry uh, Bridges uh, in the book of The Pursuit of Holiness says it this way. God has not called us to be like those around us. 
He called us to be like himself. Holiness is nothing less than conformity to the character of God. So in other words, we are to pursue holy living. As First Peter says, as, as obedience children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who calls you is holy, you also are to be holy in all, all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And if you're like me, it raises this question. And it raises the question, so how do we conform to the character of God? How can I live a life and reflect a life that says I am a follower of Christ? And Paul says it still in verse 6. By continual feeding of the truth of Scripture. But it's just a continual feeding of the truth of Scripture is not just necessary, but essential to the spiritual health of all Christians. So what was good for Paul's spiritual nourishment? Right on verse 6 where it says, Nourished by the words of faith and the good teachings was also good for Timothy's nourishment. And as well, it has to be. It has to be good for all followers of Christ. When we are nourishing our souls with the words of God, we start to conform to the likeness of Christ. So again, the goal is to be a good servant of Christ, a God-fearing people. So how do we get there? And this is where I come to my second point. How do we get there? And it's by training. It doesn't just magically happen. Scripture is very specific in how we are to live a holy life. How do we get to live that holy life in this world? And it's by training. So verse 7 says, but have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths, but rather train yourself in godliness. For the training of the body has limited benefits, but godliness is beneficial in every way. So it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. And we have to look at a couple of things here. When Paul talks about pointless and silly myths, as we look at verse 7, in addition to being committed to God's word, believers must avoid all false teachings. That's what Paul is saying, avoid it. These are fictitious. Now, if you don't know what that word means, I will give you another one. These teachings or these things are fake, counterfeit, fabricated interpretations. And furthermore, we can say with confidence that they are teachings of demons, Posing as God's truth. And Paul is saying, don't get entertained by them. Don't waste your time with that. They will lead you away from the truth. They will lead you away from sound doctrine. Instead, he says, train yourself in godliness. And the word train is an athletic term denoting the rigorous, self-sacrificing exercise an athlete undergoes. And I'll give you a, a little story about um, me not being a devoting, rigorous, self-sacrificing athlete. When I first started running, I, uh, in my sophomore year, back in 1988, 
um, I decided to sign up for cross country. And I was like, yeah, you know, I like to run. <laughs> and I really didn't know exactly what I was getting into. But uh, the coach, you know, it was already summertime. He says, okay, come back next year. But this is what you're going to do during the summer. And he gives us this big old booklet, and it tells us how to run every day. You know, you're going to start at 0 0.25, 0.5, 1.75, I mean 0 0.75, 1.0. Because it was a three-mile run for the race. And I said, okay, you know. So I tried to figure it out. I said, well, I play basketball every day. Not a problem. I'm, I'm pretty much fit. Uh, I do run. I run to the store, corner store, run back to the house with a gallon of milk. Well, I'm pretty strong. And uh, so anyways, uh, I'm not going to go through all the story because it's a long story. But what I'm trying to get is through the summer, I ran about a mile, give or take, maybe once or twice a week. And I thought this is good enough for a race. And I thought I was training like hard. So here comes the first meet. Um, at that time, there was not like, a, oh, let's get together, let's start practicing. We just did a couple of runs here and there. It wasn't very intense or anything like that, but we went to the first meet, and I ran my first cross-country meet. And I, as the gun went off, I started running. There's about five guys in front of me. I said, I'm going to keep up with these five. And about maybe a quarter of a mile, I hit a wall. I mean, a wall that I went from being number six in the meet, it's about almost 40. And I learned a lesson that day, that the training that I was doing wasn't good enough, was not good enough. So throughout the season, I realized that the training that I did throughout the summer was not even close to what I needed to do in order to be better at cross country. So I made a decision. I made a decision to listen to the coach, train hard, and by the, uh, almost by the end of the last meet, I ran, I ran my heart out, and I got to number 13th. I wouldn't have gotten there if I wouldn't have put the work, if I wouldn't have trained. I cannot say I was the best, but I'll tell you what, I wasn't coming in 40th place. I came in 13th place, and I was so proud because I, at least I got a medal, you know, saying I was in 13th place. And it was great. It was a great feeling. But the kind of training that Paul is talking about is the training of godliness. So there's not a magic wand that all of a sudden you're like, hey, here you go, have at it. It is a work in process. And he says train is a rigorous work, self-sacrificing exercise. A training that brings about the proper attitude and respond towards God. What Paul is indicating here is that there needs to be a call to holy living and having the proper attitude and conduct before the Lord in everything. In other words, spiritual self-discipline is the path to godly living. The person who has come to Christ for spiritual completion is then trained by the word to discern truth from error and holy behavior from unholy behavior. Second Timothy says it, says it this way, that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And Paul continues with this comparison about bodily training and spiritual training. For the training of the body has limited benefits. But godliness is beneficial in every way. 
since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy. So the body, the limit benefit of the body, the one thing we know for sure that bodily training is limited both in extent and duration. Anybody that goes to the gym knows that. Anybody that trains knows that. There's a point where the body says, no more. Your mind may say, I can go 10 miles more, but the body is saying, up to here, this is where you come through. It affects only the physical body during the earthly life. It's this bodily, it's this body training, you know, the, the training of the body, it just has limits. But it will get to a point in our lives that it will have no benefits. And some of you may think on that statement that is when we die, right? There's no physical benefit on exercising once you're dead. But I'm not referring to that. What I'm referring is to when a husband, and I, I, honestly, I never um, spoken to a husband that says, you know what, my wife and I, um, we're just having so many issues at home with the kids and just our marriage and all this. So I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to do a couple of squats and I'm going to bench press because this is going to benefit my marriage. And it doesn't. It will benefit the body, definitely, but it will not benefit his relationship with his wife. Paul says, but godliness, it benefits what? In all aspects, in all branches, namely true, substantial, and practical godliness. The worship and service of God by both the inward and outward man, the heart and life of the believers is beneficial in every way. Training in godliness benefits the believer in every respect. It's useful in things that are temporal as well as spiritual. It is useful in religious affairs, also in relations and connections with this present world. And the reason training in godliness is so beneficial is what verse 8 continues to say. Because it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. See, Christ assured us that if we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, things necessary shall be added unto us. We can find that in Matthew chapter 6. And moreover, that as he gives grace and glory, he does not withhold the good from those who live with integrity. And we find that also in Psalms 84. So verse 9 comes along, and, and Paul is saying all of this. And he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. See, Paul wasn't just saying this just to say it. He was, he was really thoughtful in what Scripture was saying about these things, about the promise of training in godliness, the benefits and he's saying, this is trustworthy. Believe me that this is trustworthy. God's word is trustworthy. So the goal is to what? To be a good servant? And how to be a good servant? We have to have vigorous training and how to live holy lives. And then this brings us to our third point, the reason. Chapter 10, I mean, verse 10 says, for this reason we labor and strive. Because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those 
who believe? Why do we labor and strive? And the reason is because of our hope. The believers are saved in hope and live and serve in light of that hope of eternal life. Working to the point of exhaustion and suffering, rejection, and persecution are acceptable. Because believers understand that they are doing God's work, which is the work of salvation. Like I say at times, and uh, when I speak to others about the gospel, and they believe that you have to do all these things to be saved. You have to pray more. You have to seek godliness more. You got to do all these things and just so they can be saved. And I tell them this. I say, I do all these things not to be saved. I don't seek for godliness to be saved. But I do all these things because I am saved. You see, brothers and sisters, it's, it's, it's a different attitude. I don't do these things to get merits from God. He has saved my life. And because he has saved my life, I have gratitude on what he has done for me. And the scripture is saying, because I have given you salvation, live for me. And the word of God shows us how to live for God. So we can reflect the glory of God, the life of Christ in us, so others can see and be saved, not by my life, but who is living in my life. Who are supposed to be living in my life. Sometimes we don't do a good job. And I have to admit that in my life. Sometimes I have to go and say, Lord, I was not a good enough Christian today. My thoughts, my actions, the things that I did, it, it was horrible. Forgive me. And I feel the grace of God upon my life. And I say, you know what? Tomorrow is a brand new day. And I'm going to live for you. I'm going to try to do better. Not because this is going to save me. It's because I know the one who saved me. The one I need to reflect. The one that I, that I need to say, this is the savior of my life. I may not be perfect, but he is perfect. And there's promises putting my confidence and hope on him. Amen. Our hope. Colossians 1, 24, 25 says this way. This way now I rejoice. In my suffering for you. And I am completing, completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for his, for his body. That is the church. I have become its servant. According to God's commission that was given to me from you. To make the word of God fully known. See, Paul was just like... This is what I'm living for. This is my hope. This is why I want to be a servant of Christ. I'm giving it all for the gospel to be fully known. So the word of God could be fully known to all people. But it's interesting as verse, verse 10 says this, for this reason we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God, and those are talking about the believers, but then Paul continues and says, who is the Savior of all people, especially to those who believe. And in a general sense, 
we can say that God is Savior of all people. But I like that Paul doesn't just stop there and gives room for some wrong teaching about, you know, that everybody can just be saved no matter what religion you're in, no matter how you believe. Because he puts especially of those who believe. He makes a distinction between the Savior of all and those that believe. So Paul is obviously not teaching that all people will be saved in the spiritual and eternal sense. Since the rest of the scripture clearly teaches that God will not save everyone. Most will reject them and spend eternity in hell. Yet the Greek word for, uh, for uh, uh, the word specially in English is melitza, which translates to most or most of all. And it must mean that all people enjoy God's salvation in some way, like those who believe enjoy salvation. The simple explanation that I can give you is that God is the Savior of all people only in a temporal sense. While for all believers in an eternal sense, Paul points it, uh, I'm sorry, Paul's point is that while God graciously delivers believers from sin, condemnation, and penalty because he is their substitute, all people experience some earthly benefits from the goodness of God. And I have four examples that I would like to share with you this morning about the temporal benefits that non-believers experience. The first one is common grace. And it's a term that describes God's goodness shown to all mankind universally in restraining sin and judgment. Can you imagine if sin was not restrained? We would not be sitting here today. It would be chaotic, and if God's judgment was not restrained towards us, can we safely say we'll be sitting here? Psalms 145.9 says it this way, The Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made. So according to the scripture also, he also maintains order in society through government and enabling mankind to appreciate beauty and goodness and showering mankind with temporal blessings. We see that all the time. The psalmist, right, will say like, look at the wicked. They're, they're being blessed. And we have to wonder, well, they don't even serve God. And yet they are under God's provision, under God's rule, and they're benefiting on a temporal matter. Matthew 5 Chapter 5, verse 45 says this, so that you may be children of your fathers in heaven, of your father in heaven, for he has caused his son, S-U-N, not son, S-O-N, for he has caused his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous, on the righteous, I'm sorry, and the unrighteous. Temporal blessings for mankind. Example number two is compassion. So we see in common grace, now we see compassion. The brokenhearted, loving pity that God shows to undeserving, ungenerated sinners or ungenerous sinners. Daniel 9, chapter 9, verse 9 says, Compassion and forgiveness belongs to the Lord our God, though we have rebelled against him. 
Exodus 34 says it this way, that the Lord is compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But then it says, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. So we see two examples so far, common grace, the compassion that God has overall. The third one is admonition to repent. See, God constantly warns sinners of their fate, demonstrating the heart of a compassionate creator who has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And you will hear many that says God sends people to hell. That is his desire to send evil people to hell because they don't want to accept Christ as their savior. So he just sends them to hell. But I don't know, Ezekiel chapter 33 verse 11 says this. And this is God telling the prophet to tell the Israelites. He says, tell them as I live this is the decoration of the Lord God. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his ways and live. Repent, repent of your evil ways. Why would you die, O house of Israel? I don't know about you, but I don't hear a God wanting the wicked to die. I hear him saying, repent and come to me. And the fourth example, the gospel invitation. See, salvation in Christ is indiscriminately offered to us. The salvation is not just for a certain group. It is for everyone. See, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says it this way. Jesus says, come to me, all of you. He doesn't say some of you or uh, Puerto Ricans, Mexican, Israel. He says all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So here's the point. God is by nature a saving God. That is, he finds no pleasure in the death of sinners, his saving character is revealed even in how he deals with those who will never believe. But only in these four temporal ways that scripture has pointed out, we put out this morning, is how we can say, right, that God is the savior of all. It's just in these temporal things. But especially for those that believe, it's totally different. There's an eternity, an eternal um, uh, 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 I say idea, a sense of idea on that. So here's my final thought. That while good servants hope in God and heavenly things, unfaithful servants primarily have earthly hopes. They hope in money, retirement, and secular success. Since their hope is secular, it manifests in their lives, and therefore they become worldly. But for those whose hopes are eternal, as they hope in God, it manifests in a life of ministering to all, and also they are waiting for the kingdom of God. You see, servants of Christ consider their lives on earth as a brief time 
of preparation for eternity. The hardships and struggles that we must face while in the flesh will be far outmatched by the glory and reward awaiting us. Just as a servant who loves his master and lives for the master approval, likewise, servants of Christ live for the moment Christ will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And we find that in Matthew chapter 25, verse 21 to 23. Let us stand and let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this word, Lord. Thank you for everything you have done in our lives. I pray that this word will continue to grow in our hearts. Convict us, Lord, of how to live for you. Make us diligent athletes, Lord, who exercise our spiritual bodies, recognizing that while physical exercise has some benefits, Father, godliness is of value in every way because I know it holds the promises for the present life and also for the life to come. We set the hope of our hearts upon you, Father, our living God, Savior of all men, and most especially of us who have put our trust in you. We do believe in you, Father. Please use our hope and faith as a springboard to our diligent efforts for your kingdom. And I do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.